Hello and welcome to the February edition of the Viva Magazine podcast. I'm Johnny Ensel, Editorial Director, and your host as we take a loving look at food, drink, travel, movies, TV and culture in general. And if you're feeling romantic this February, then we have some excellent rom-coms to recommend to you. Plus, you'll discover why Californian influencers are falling in love with the 60s again, why London's passionate about street art, and why celebs are having emotional reunions with their old roles. And there's even a little bit of this. Slower than wine and lower than um, gin. <laughs> so, I don't know. <laughs> sure. It's slight, slightly better for you than hard liquor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, we begin in sweltering fashion with Red Hot, the segment where we take a searingly insightful look into the world of trends from around the planet. And we have here Jessica Pupas. Hello, Jess. Hello, how are you? Yes, I'm all right. Well, you and I were both at the same party last night, so yeah. you're probably feeling like I am. I know, we're so cool. We go to parties. Yeah, <laughs> we go to parties <laughs> together. Yeah, it's no big deal. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, in in a croaky way, we shall move swiftly through the most uh, astonishing things happening. We shall commence. Yeah. Okay. What have you got for us, first of all? Uh, let's start in London, where mm-hmm. we are. Uh, at the Saatchi Gallery, which is a gallery in Kensington. Quite a big gallery. Uh, and they often put on some, like, really exciting exhibitions. Um, so so Saatchi is, like, synonymous with the kind of young British artist movement of yeah. the 90s and Very noughties. Good. Yeah, thank you. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and uh, that gallery, when I've been there, has always put on exhibitions that are somewhat, maybe, like, like a little bit sensational. Crowd-pleasy, you crowd might say. yeah, okay, yeah. And this one is no exception. So opening this month is Beyond the Streets. Beyond the Streets, and what's that about? So it's a major survey of street art and graffiti art, like 150 artists um, who use graffiti and guerrilla tactics mm. in their art. So this is something that has popped up in LA and New York before, put yeah. on by the same by the, by the same organization. Um, they're called Beyond the Streets. Um, and when they put the exhibition on in LA it broke all kinds of attendance records. Um, right. This was way back in 2011. Yeah. Maybe and- when street art was like a bit more like of a sort of burgeoning concept. That's maybe the sort of like the Banksy heyday. Yeah, exactly. I think that it was really instrumental in legitimizing street art for mm. a certain art world crowd. Mm-hmm. And then they've just gone from strength to strength from there, really. So their last major exhibition in 2019 was in New York, uh, also called Beyond the Streets, and it featured artists like Takashi Murakami, Katsu, uh, just like loads of big names, um, and it was really, really popular as well. Mm. And this is the first time it's coming to Europe? or to It's the first UK? time it's coming to Europe, and the reason it's coming to London is because London has been also just like a key player in the mm. global street art scene, so it's going to explore London's role, really, in the evolution of street art and its history, you know. Yeah, fabulous. Okay. That sounds wonderful. All right, let's move on. What's next? La Société in San mm, Francisco. Oui. <laughs> oui. It <laughs> has a French name, but it's in California. Okay, right. And it's uh, so it's a, uh, it is a French restaurant? It is a French restaurant, yes. But it's kind of like French with a California twist. It's, it's an interesting concept. Uh, the chef is this guy named Alexandre Viriot. 
and he has an extremely French name, but he was born <laughs> in Dallas, believe it you or said not. You it so beautifully. Oh, thank you. <laughs> he said, I do, I do speak French, yeah, so... Um, <laughs> And um, I feel like you dropped that on a previous podcast as well. You <laughs> <yeah>. spoke French. <laughs> well, it's one of my defining features. <laughs> so, yeah, he was born in Dallas. And, yeah, he's at the helm here. And he's making classic French dishes, you know, like as French as can be, mm. you know. Très French. Très French. Um, onion catinée, right. the whole nine yards. And, um, yeah, I think... You can really see that California influence in dishes like um, the salmon rillettes, which are uh, sprinkled with everything, bagel, seasoning. Oh, right. Okay. Very tasty. So it's got a real American spin. Yeah, exactly. All right. Wonderful. What's next? Um, From France to Italy, Mm. but from Italy to L.A. There's a new hotel in downtown L.A. called Hotel Perla. That just opened. Um, and Do you speak Italian, by the no, way? Well, I took an Italian course for a month, but nothing, absolutely nothing stuck, unfortunately. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I'm going to struggle through this one. But um, it's housed in the uh, Giannini building, which is the former home of the Bank of Italy. So it's this kind of like historic building in downtown L.A., and you can see the Italian inflection in the architecture, you know, mm. lots of columns and... Mm cornices and stuff beautiful you know it's like mid-century furnishings mm. and like it, it just looks like a cool milan restaurant if you can picture that yeah i can yeah yeah like a fe- where the fashion set would go all right lovely okay what are you recommending next um hard kombucha hard kombucha do you know what this is i can guess <laughs> I'm guessing it's kombucha with alcohol in it. Exactly. Um, And I'm surprised that it took people this long to To put alcohol (laughs) alcohol in it. it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I feel like if you get drunk off of hard kombucha, it feels a lot more... Virtuous. Virtuous, yeah. Yeah. Okay, and where can you get this? Uh, There's a tap room in Williamsburg that opened recently, a hard kombucha tap room called um, Juneshine. In in, New York. In New York, yeah, exactly. Um, Called Juneshine. So, yeah, they've got, like, a whole range of hard kombuchas on tap. Mm. Or you can drink it at uh, Nosa, Capri- Nosa Caprina. Is this an Italian pronunciation you're struggling <laughs> I think it's uh, Portuguese. Portuguese. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you're really being put to the test. Caprina? Okay, need a, yeah. Need a few more Duolingo <laughs> lessons. Um, Nosa Caprina. Caprina. Caprina, Caprina. Nosa Caprina. In LA, uh, they mix their hard kombucha with acai berry for, you know, extra, extra health. Extra health. Or you can try Boochcraft in San Francisco, which is a local company. They make hard kombucha and it's, you know, in all the bottle shops, basically. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's, like, it's really kind of taken over the US, I'd say. These are not somewhat of an irony in the fact that kombucha is, it was, it was like designed as a, a kind of non alcoholic drink for mm. people who would otherwise be drinking. And now they've gone and put alcohol in it. <laughs> it's like having like non-alcoholic beer and then being like, it's a hard non-alcoholic beer. <laughs> am, I, am, am I totally off base here? I mean, y- y- yes and no. <laughs> I don't know if it's meant to be an alternative to booze necessarily, kombucha, but it is something that people drink if they're not drinking, I guess. Mm. But I mean, you can, you know, take solace in the fact that it's low ABV, you know. The, oh, I do. Yeah. <laughs> 
the kombuchas at uh, June Shine, uh, you know, they kind of sit around the 6% ABV. Well, that's quite high. Yeah, that's true. That is quite high, actually. <laughs> but they're saying it's low. It's higher than a beer. <laughs> Let's kind of think that. Yeah. It's lower than wine. Lower than wine. <laughs> yeah. It's lower than wine and lower than um, gin. <laughs> so I don't know. <laughs> sure. It's slight, slightly better for you than hard liquor. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Well, let's move on from that. Then. Um, what, what else are you recommending? Um, celebs reprising iconic roles. Mm, which celebs? Which roles? Uh, David Tennant. Yeah. Uh-huh. Apparently notoriously a hottie. Well, we were talking about this before we came on air <laughs> and you, you said, uh, why are people all swoony over David Tennant? Yeah. And then you claim to have never even seen a picture I've of David. I've never even seen a photo of him. Yeah. I have no idea what he looks like. But, but <laughs> people are apparently very excited about him um, reprising his role as the Time Lord in Doctor Who. Uh, it's going to get a few more special episodes on the BBC this November. Mm. You, you you sound like you've never watched Doctor Who no, in I've your never, entire no, I've life. I've never watched Doctor Who. <laughs> I've never watched Doctor Who, so... <laughs> I mean, this is this is big news in the Hooniverse. Right? <laughs> so for him to be like donning his tweedy suit again to return is probably setting hearts aflutter. I'm guessing. <laughs> I'm gonna take your word for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are you, well, I, I'm probably more of a Doctor Who fan than you are. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Well, I'm I'm excited that he's coming back. So we we have some other actors who are also reprising roles. Yes, uh, this one I'm more familiar with. Brian Cranston is reprising his role as Hal you know, the kind of beleaguered mm. father. In, in Malcolm in the Middle. Malcolm in the Middle, exactly, yeah. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, well, I mean, he's in. it's in the works now. There's no release date. Okay. But he's apparently hard at work on it. There's basically just lots of this going on, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, people like it. They always like seeing their favorite characters, you know, brought back to life. Like Courtney Cox, for example. She is also um, reprising her role as Gail Weathers in the Sixth Scream mm. installment, which is coming out this year. Sixth Scream. Wow. Mm, yeah. Is it having it's like Scream Six or is it like Screamier? <laughs> <laughs> scream Six, Screamier. <laughs> this is Screamining. Scre- the Screamining. <laughs> two Scream, Two Screamier. <laughs> yes. It's one of those. I mean, they can. The producers can have those for free. <laughs> You're welcome. All right. Well, thank you, Jess. Will you be reprising your role as person talking on a podcast next month? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll think about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I too shall be reprising my role as person talking to you. <laughs> I'll see if I have room in the schedule. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we can do it virtually if we you want. We can CGI me in. Yeah, okay. Wonderful. Thank you, Jess. <laughs> thank you. It's now time for Location Scout, and the location we're dipping into this episode is Barbados. And you may think of Barbados as a place of beautiful beaches, which absolutely is, but it's also somewhere to have some very special adventures. And to discuss that, we've got local journalist Karen Rollins on the line. So we're going to phone her and see if we can have a chat. So let's uh, make that call. Hello. Hi, Karen. It's Johnny. Hi, Johnny. Good to hear from you. How are you doing? I'm doing really well. I feel like I can hear the sounds of uh, waves lapping in the background. Yes, that's right. I'm in the Aquatic Gap, which is uh, in the parish of St. Michael, and I'm actually on Pebbles Beach right now. 
and it's a beautiful day. It's Pebble Beach. Does it live up to its namesake? It's a pebbly beach. <laughs> no, it's actually not a pebble beach at all. It's no. not a pebbly beach. <laughs> I'm okay. not sure where that name came from. No, it's it's a typical Caribbean white sand blue sea beach, and um, yeah, just like you would see on a postcard. Okay, I'm imagining it right now in my mind's eye while I sit in cold London. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, well, you, uh, I, I'm hearing a British accent. So, what's your connection to Barbados? So, I was actually born in England, mm-hmm. in London, but um, yeah, I've lived here now for a total of ten years. Ten years, and um, what, what sort of person has it made you living in Barbados versus living in the UK? Um, it's definitely made me a lot more relaxed coming here. It's a completely different pace of life. You kind of get to switch off a bit more. And it's also an outdoors life, which I've really enjoyed because I'm kind of an active person. So you can get out and um, see the islands and, and do as much or as little as you like. Yes. And um, let's talk about that then. So what adventure sports is Barbados known for? And what adventure sports are you into personally? Personally, I'm into running, and we've actually, uh, recently in December, we've had our Run Barbados Marathon weekend, which is our biggest running event here. We get people coming from all over the world to take part in uh, 5K, 7K, and 10K races, and a half marathon and a marathon. Running here is definitely a big thing. A lot of people here cycle as well. You'll find a lot of cycling groups, and there's a lot of hiking groups as well, different hiking that you can do all around the island and see some amazing sights. Yeah, what's the terrain like in Barbados? Yeah, and Barbados, as um, people probably know, is quite flat. So the terrain is pretty simple for a lot of people if they want to hike. It's not anything too strenuous, which is good because the sun is so hot. But I think that the best place if you, if you want a challenging hike is probably in the Scotland district, which is in the parish of St. Andrew. You can go up to Mount Hillaby, which is our highest peak, which is just over 1,100 feet above sea level. And um, that is probably the most strenuous hike we have on the island. And it's definitely worth it because once you get to the top, the views of the East Coast and out to the Atlantic Ocean are just absolutely stunning. Mm, well, you make it sound dreamy. <laughs> the view sounds wonderful. The hike, I'll, uh, you maybe have to persuade me of that. But um, what about uh, on the water? What are people doing on the water in Barbados? Yes, of course, on the water there is so much to do. Um, where I am right now on Pebbles Beach, this is really one of the hotspots for water sports. So there are people out windsurfing. I can see people in kayaks and on little topper boats. Um, this is the area where you can also learn to do stand-up paddle boarding. There's an outlet here called Paddle Barbados, and they teach you everything you need to know on the sand in about 20 minutes. They tell you how to balance and how to go forward and backwards and how to stop. And then you can go out on the water on a paddleboard. And, you know, I've done it and it is pretty strenuous, I would say, especially for your core, (laughs) staying balanced. And I found one of the hardest things here, because this is in Carlisle Bay, which is one of our most amazing spots on the island. I found it really hard to concentrate on staying upright because it is such a beautiful location. And there's boats moored Mm. here, luxury boats, there's catamarans, there's little fishing boats. Obviously, there's people in the water. And then you actually sometimes even see green turtles popping their heads up. So it's pretty hard to concentrate on the paddle boarding while all of that is going on. But it is one of the best areas to do that. And then further down um, towards, just through Bridgetown, going towards the West Coast, 
we have a new attraction called Rascal's Water Park, which claimed to be the biggest obstacle course of its kind on the water in the Caribbean. And it is full of just slides and ladders and all kinds of um, different ways to challenge yourself. And what is good about that as well, it's really fun for all the family. There's a junior course on the inside of the inflatable and then there's an uh, adult course on the outside. So it's fun for everybody. And um, I've not done that one, but I've heard it's, it's really great. So I could be a rascal. Yeah, the great thing about Rascals as well is that um, it's right on Brandon's Beach and there's uh, the Rascals restaurant right there. So you don't even have to leave the beach like the whole day. And they also rent out paddle boards and kayaks as well. So you can literally spend the whole day there just out on the water and it's beautiful. Mm. And then in the south of the island, um, which people might know is where we have a bit more of the rougher side, I would say, like the Atlantic Ocean side. So there's a lot of wind. Mm-hmm. So that's where you'll find the wind surfers, the surfers, and the kite boarders. And Silver Sands is a spot for kite boarding. There's quite a few schools down there that can teach you all about that exciting sport. And um, you can get out on the water and be out there all day long. And then, of course, in Bathsheba, in St. Joseph, is where you'll find the Soup Bowl, which is a really famous surfing spot here. And that's where a lot of the experienced surfers will go down and just challenge themselves all day long and the great thing about the suit goal is especially during the winter months the waves reach to about 15 feet so you can really have some some really good fun out there on on your surfboard wow brilliant oh i I mean you've really sold it to me but um what is unique about barbados as a destination for outdoor sports and thrill seeking what really sets it apart would you say I think the most amazing thing about Barbados as a destination is that it's got something for everybody. I mean, obviously, it's typical Caribbean um, laid-back lifestyle. You can come and just sit at a beach bar and relax, and the locals will always, always talk to you. They're always up for a conversation. So you can just, um, you know, have rest, relaxation, rejuvenation, or you can do, you know, a whole heap of adrenaline-based activities and just fill your itinerary with loads of different things to do. And I think also it's great for, like I said, for all different members of the family. So the children will have fun, adults, anybody who just, you know, enjoys doing lots of different things on their holiday. And the good thing as well about Barbados is they're really thinking about people who are on a budget and who are budget conscious. So a lot of the times people think of Barbados as a luxury Caribbean destination, But I do think there are a lot of activities and a lot of things that you can do now that definitely won't break the bank. So you can come and you can stay in an Airbnb, you can stay in a little villa, self-catering, or you can stay in a four or five star hotel. Whatever you want to do, there's something for everyone. Mm. Well, I like the picture that you're painting and I like the idea that you can go thrill seeking, but you don't have to seek particularly hard if you don't want to I think that's that's what I want I want to go on an outdoor (laughs) holiday but not be pushed too hard (laughs) yeah you could definitely intersperse the activities with just coming to the beach and relaxing so what about once you've finished with your thrills where should you go and hang out where's the sort of best places for downtime well personally I really love the drive-in which is the drive-in cinema here as far as I know it's the only one in the Caribbean Mm. To me, it's just the perfect place to just go. You sit in your car and you listen to the movie through your radio 
And I just find it really like the best thing here. I just love doing it. And of course, we've got the weather for that. Mm. And then the other things you can do is just uh, just come to a beach bar, just sit down with a rum punch, look at the waves, and just watch a sunset. And that is always really relaxing. And the other thing I would recommend is the boardwalk. There's two. There's one in the west. But the one on the south coast is about 1.5 kilometers long. And it goes all along the coastline. And it is so, so chilled out walking on that boardwalk. You're just looking out to the sea. You're just listening to the waves. There's different areas where you can sit down as well and just take it all in. And um, right now there's an art exhibition at the end of the boardwalk that's going to be there till the end of 2024. And it's got about 25 giant prints and originals up on the boardwalk from local artists. And walking along and, and looking at those and reading their descriptions, and of course they're all depicting different aspects of Bajan life and Caribbean life. Um, that is something that I would definitely highly recommend if you're just looking for something to take your mind off of everything that's going on right now. Nice. So there's a little um, touch of uh, authentic Barbados at the end of that journey. Oh, yes, definitely. And I think that's another thing that's great about Barbados. Like, you know, Bajans always keep it real. It's not one of those places where you come and you, you can't mix with the local people or you don't mix with the local people or you just um, stay in your hotel this is a place where you come, you hire a car, you get out, you get on the local buses, local ZR minivans, and you talk to people. And everybody's friendly, everybody um, has got a smile, and everybody just is, is happy for you to be here because um, they know how much you know the tourists save up to get here, and they know that people just want to have a really good time. So everybody's really helpful and friendly. One thing with Barbados is you're definitely going to have an authentic experience. Mm. Well, the sound of the waves lapping and your vivid descriptions is making me feel very relaxed. And uh, I think I'm going to carry that energy into the rest of my day. So thanks so much for chatting with us, Karen. No problem. I wish I could send you some of this sunshine. I know it's pretty cold then. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Karen. No problem. Tracy Turco is an influencer, designer and hotelier with a passion for all things retro. Based in Palm Springs, California, she's also the founder of the city's Modernism Museum, where she catalogues and celebrates Palm Springs' obsession with mid-century architecture and design. She tells us why she's bringing 60s swing to 2023. Here's her story. Tracy Turco, an artist, designer, and the curator of the Modernism Museum here in Palm Springs, California. The vibe in Palm Springs is very retro. It's a throwback to the heyday of the old Hollywood uh, mid-century. And a lot of people and enthusiasts like myself love that retro style. Obviously, I'm wearing it and dressing it. But not only that, you'll see the cars on the streets that are all vintage. The homes are all mid-century modern. People come here for this special look. And boy, does Palm Springs deliver. 
Palm Springs is super unique in that it has a love and affinity for preserving the mid-century vibe and the vintage styles, and they have markets outside. They really create a community of love and preservation like none other. And I've always felt like a fish out of water being in New York City because based on my style, my taste, my aesthetic, the music I like, the cars I drive, it's back in a different time period. So with Palm Springs, that was like a natural hug to me. It said, come here, you belong here. You're the essence of what Palm Springs is all about. It's the elegance, the glamour. I dress up every day to go to the supermarket and walk my dog and baby. So it's that time capsule period that you don't see anymore. And I personally have such a love and affinity for preserving that, that I created the Modernism Museum in Palm Springs. So when people come to visit and you see the houses on the outside or on mid-century, when you go inside on a tour, you'll see that all the inner workings, the kitchens, they've all been modernized. So you don't actually have the flavor of that time period. So that's why I created our museum. So you can actually walk through the 50s, 60s, 70s, the kitchens, the bathrooms, the living rooms, and get the full time capsule period of that moment. And people connect to it. It has to do with family and their heritage and how they were brought up. And even like if they saw an owl canister for cookies, their grandmother had that and they remember it. So in the Modernism Museum, I felt that I had to capture the flavor of Palm Springs at its heyday and share with the community what that meant. Because a lot of times when they come and they think it's mid-century, but there was also a very heavy Western vibe because of smoke tree stables and a lot of Hollywood coming here to, to go on the canyon trails on horseback. So there's a big Western vibe. No one knew that. We have a 1969 Jaguar XJE. And even in the MoMA, they, they're showcasing that car. But you come to Palm Springs, we have that in like perfect condition. We have a 1956 uh, Wellcraft wooden boat that it says Hound Dog on the back. And then we have a video of Elvis water skiing in the background. We have a tiki bar, Jean Mansfield's bathtub, owed to that with the fur pink walls, like all the fun flavor. So the youth, the younger generation can actually be immersed in that mid-century without having to be over-educated about it. And they're in a selfie mode. So at least you could sit down on the couch, you could sit in the bathtub, you could go on the bed, you could take a photo, like water skiing, you could go in the vintage camper, and I have a whole golf setup with Frank Sinatra, um, Phyllis Diller, Dinah Shore, like all the, the heavyweight names of Palm Springs, along with the airport and travel. And so travel was such a big part of it and all the airlines and the vintage style of the airline stewardesses. Like on Virgin Airlines, I love the logo. I love the style. And I love the stewardesses. And the airplanes had style back then. And so did everyone. And you dress up and your suitcases and luggage was fantastic. So I'm just incorporating all that for an immersive, like one of a kind experience. The feedback from the museum is, is just outstanding. I was in the gift shop one day just stopping by and I heard people screaming. So I went back there and they're in the Jean Mansfield bubble top and they are carrying on that this is the best thing they ever did. And they're coming back with all their friends. They want their bachelorette party to be here. And I heard some guys screaming too, because they were like, oh, this is where my mother, this beauty parlor, I used to drop her off to get her 
hair rolled and then pick her up. And I have a 1950s style beauty parlor in the back. And people are just so excited. And then they go in the back and it's over 10,000 square feet. They see a disco roller rink and free skee-ball machines, a kissing booth, a vintage one, and all sorts of like fun surprises around the corner. Palm Springs maintained the mid-century love because of the architecture. They preserved it. So really, you're just going back in a time capsule period. And the beauty about Palm Springs is they encourage people and they have committees and historical societies and everything to promote this certain mid-century architecture. So it's still there. All the homes are preserved. And that's why people come there to enjoy the lifestyle and see the magnificent mid-century architecture. For me as a designer, when I came to Palm Springs with my husband, all of the properties that we had bought were in decay. And the outer shell and structure were there, but all the problems that come along with it are 1950s plumbing, electricity panels. There's not even outlets on the walls to even plug in an iPhone. So even in the hotels right now, when, when we have our guests come, we say, please mind the plumbing because a lot of the times we have to rip out the entire plumbing and through all the way down to the street. It's so costly and time consuming and the permits. So that's a little prohibitive when trying to preserve the history. Other than that, I think that Palm Springs, it's pretty easy to maintain and preserve a mid-century home if you can get plumbing and electricity down right. We happen to own the uh, Gabor estate from the famous Magda Gabor, Zsa Gabor, Ava Gabor, that whole um, sisterhood. And um, we're preserving the house and putting it on the tours, as well as we have a 1961 William Kreisel house. And I decorated that in a 1970s style. And that one was open for Airbnb visitors so they can actually sleep and, and get the feel of being in a time capsule. So I'm just continuing preserving with my husband and, and capturing the mid-century love to share with everyone in the world. It evokes like a warm, special, like Americana feeling that we're trying to hold on to before it fades away. You can follow Tracy on Instagram at tracy.turco or check her out at tracyturco.com. We now move on cinematically uh, into the sunset of the podcast and uh, what's on the bit where we talk about those wonderful films and TV shows that you should watch right now. And we're joined for this by film critic Simran Hans. Hello, Simran. Hello, Johnny. So, yes, let's just get into it. What are you uh, recommending in the world of film, first of all? So the first thing that I want to recommend is a little film that is incredibly silly, incredibly fun. It's called The Menu. It's a satire about rich people and specifically the various different genres of rich people who spend exorbitant money on fine dining tasting menus. So you've got your food critics, you've got your C-list celebrities, your Instagram, your Instagram hype beasts, your finance bros, mm -hmm. your joyless married couple, all of these different 
annoying variations on a theme are um, at this concept restaurant with all this modernist architecture in its own kind of self-sustaining farm. And Ray Fiennes plays a tyrannical chef in the kind of mad genius mold. He's a bit of a Gordon Ramsay type. Yeah. And uh, he decides to teach these people a lesson about what it means to kind of spend uh, all of your money on food. And, you know, he kind of shows them a good or, or shall we say, not so good time. Mm, unsavoury experience. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I think it's a, a kind of an interesting idea, right, about how something that was once creative expression, um, you know, cooking, fine dining, has just been turned into empty commerce by people who have money but no taste. Mm. Um, Anya Taylor-Joy and Nicholas Holt are kind of the main couple at the centre of it. And he is very much a, a kind of instagram fanboy of this world of high-end cooking and anya taylor joy plays a bit more of an interloper and so she's the audience's way into this island on which this um kind of chaotic meal unfolds um mm. it's directed by mark mylod who worked on succession so he's kind of mm. got knowledge of this kind of high-end world you know he's got experience of it um, and I'd say it's it's not quite a horror, but it's more of a thriller. I'd put it in the sort of category of it's almost feels like an M Night Shyamalan movie. It's very popcorny. It's very silly. It's very fun. Mm. Um, definitely worth a watch. Okay, well I like movies about food, and I like movies with a twist. Uh, so this sounds up my street. All right, let's move on. What else are you uh, touting? Um, so a different kind of vacation, uh, let's say. I would like to recommend Ticket to Paradise, which is a romantic comedy starring Julia Roberts and George Clooney as a divorced couple who travel to Bali to try and stop their daughter from throwing away her life and getting married to a local man. And it's a kind of like, will they, won't they rekindle mm. their romance get over their kind of bickering from years and years of hating each other. That's a big ticket cast, right? You know, Roberts and Clooney reuniting. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's why I think this film is worth watching. You know, I grew up with romantic comedies. I've got a soft spot for the genre. And Julia Roberts was one of my kind of rom-com queens. Also my dad's number one celebrity crush. Oh, really? <laughs> He'll hate me for saying that. And George Clooney and Julia Roberts have played a couple before. Um, in the Ocean's Eleven films. So mm -hmm. there's an existing chemistry for them to kind of play off. But the thing you have to remember about George Clooney is that he was also massive in the 90s. He mm. was famous for being a heartthrob on ER, right? So they both have this kind of existing stardom that they tap into in this film. And, you know, rom-coms are a bit of a hard sell these days, I guess, because they're catered around relationships and not kind of spectacle and explosions and... Yeah existing uh, intellectual property. But I do think that there's something really magical about watching two incredibly charismatic people just sort of vibing and being goofy mm. and trying not to fall in love with each other. Um, and there's a bit of scruple energy to this film, you know. They're on a beach, they're bickering, they're getting drunk, playing beer pong, listening to Jump Around by House of Pain. George Clooney tries on uh, Julia Roberts's yoga pants. Yeah, there's all of this cute stuff in there, and uh, it's well, that's really fun. That's worth the ticket price alone, you know, <laughs> to see uh, George Clooney in tight-fitting activewear. <laughs> I mean, that's what that. I thought. Well, it's got something for your dad, and it's got something for me. So, <laughs> two tickets to paradise, please. Um, 
<laughs> okay. Um, what's your third pick, Simran? Oh, my third pick is is another rom com, which is different but also kind of similar in a way. It's a film called Bros. Bros. Exactly, Bros. Not Bros, like the band. Bros, like the like the dudes. Importantly, it's not related to the band Bros. Mm. It is specifically Bros. Shame. It's written and directed by Billy Eichner. He stars in it as well. He plays the main character, Bobby. And this film made a little bit of noise when it first came out in cinemas because it was sort of billed as the first gay rom-com to be made by a big studio. But I think if we try and measure the film's success by how groundbreaking it is or isn't, Mm. as some of its critics have argued, we possibly might lose sight of what it's doing well, which is kind of cleaving to this classic rom-com formula in which the neurotic heroine, or in this case hero, is kind of met with the balancing energy of their kind of knight in shining armour. And also, I cried. I cried Mm. watching this film. Well, that's a good barometer. So it's about this guy called Bobby, who has made a career out of having this really kind of big, abrasive personality and not really having any filter. He's a 40-something gay podcaster who is setting up a new museum dedicated to LGBT history in New York. He's really caustic, he's really cynical, he's really hardened to love. This is a stereotype that we recognise from the rom-com genre, right? And then along comes the hunky, lovely Aaron, who is played by Luke McFarlane, who some people might have seen on the niche underrated show Brothers and Sisters. Mm -hmm. And he's kind of sensible, low-key, he's a jock, he's got a normie job. I think he works in like, uh, as like a lawyer for people who have died. (laughs) <laughs> what, what is that what, what is that job called you know when you're like handling people's estates ghost lawyer ghost lawyer i think, I think it's a ghost lawyer similar <laughs> he's a ghost lawyer no he he handles people's estates as they're kind of dying or have died oh, okay. so he has this yeah. kind of like boring job um and the specificity of the jokes just really work there's some incredible cameos mm. you know from queer icons deborah messing from will and grace <sighs> is in there Oh yes. The Broadway legend Kristen Chenoweth pops up. <laughs> and um yeah, there's lots of kind of skewering of contemporary gay culture of like grinder and you know people who work out all the time and not not to reduce gay culture down to grinder and the gym, but <laughs> I I mean I guess kind of like the the surface level pop culture references the world all of that is done with an attention to detail that is very funny and very sharp. Excellent. Okay. Sounds really good. Well, you've picked two rom-coms and one film where lots of rich people get their just desserts. So love and um, punishment (laughs) (laughs) seem like the themes of this month. Excellent. Okay. Well, let's carry that into TV. What are you (laughs) recommending in TV? Well, let's, uh, let's start with some punishment. Oh, excellent. With a TV drama called Yellow Jackets. It's about teenage girls. It's about cannibalism. It's about the 90s and it's, it's kind of this almost like Lost-esque mystery show where there's a group of women who, when they were teenagers, they were on a soccer team in the 90s mm-hmm. and they got involved in this kind of traumatic event. Uh, something really bad happened to them. And so mm. as adults, they the ones that kind of survived the event are kind of still reckoning with the trauma of it. And so you have the kind of the flashback narrative where over the course of 10 episodes, we begin to find out what actually happened when their plane crashed in the middle of Canada and they were kind of forced to fend for themselves. And then the 
the contemporary narrative which is set in 2021 where these women are kind of forced to reckon with stuff that they really don't want to think about again and kind of forced to encounter each other after many years apart um and the cast is really interesting because with the uh, adult characters they've taken people who you would definitely have recognized from 90s movies people like Juliette Lewis and then uh Christina Ricci who you know was famously Wednesday Adams and uh Yes, and famously on the cover of River magazine a couple of issues ago. Exactly. Probably just as famously, I would say. I would agree with that. <laughs> and then Melanie Linsky as well. She's kind of the centre of the show. And so, yeah, the, the kind of dovetailing between the two different eras is a really interesting way of thinking about trauma and about female friendship and just the kind of the wounds that get created in our teenage years and and how mm. the stuff that happens to you when you're at that formative age really really kind of sticks with you but yeah steal yourself for it because it's a very gory show there's a a lot of kind of like quite nasty stuff in there like a bit of gore that sounds good all right then let's uh let's move on what's your penultimate pick so my penultimate pick is a, a documentary it's called lynch oz and it's a, a film about David Lynch, the, the film director, and his relationship with The Wizard of Oz and how that film kind of informs his work. But it's a kind of an anthology film. It's got episodes made by uh, various different people. And there's these kind of video essays where we sort of see visually the comparisons between David Lynch's films and... The Wizard of Oz and, and various other films with a voiceover um, that explains the connections between the two. So filmmakers like John Waters, Karen Kusama, David Lowry, they're involved. There's also a really good essay by the critic Amy Nicholson. And they just like tease out like all of these connections between the, the Wizard of Oz, the 1939 film that you have definitely seen on TV uh, with Judy Garland and A Yellow Brick Road and ruby red slippers and a tin man and a lion and a witch that melts somewhere near the end exactly but yeah like like many of us david lynch probably saw this on tv and and it really stayed with him and i thought this film was interesting because a lot of people know david lynch's films you know um the elephant man blue velvet wild at heart mulholland drive of course his tv show twin peaks and the follow-up the return mm. Um, but I think this documentary really kind of teases out the meaning of Lynchian, a word that I think is often used as a shorthand for dark or creepy or un- weird. a bit weird, a bit yeah. off. Yeah. And instead it kind of drills down into the tropes of David Lynch's films and where they might have come from in a more specific way. So and, and those tropes, I would say, are like dreamy, surreal, mm. filled with dread, obsessed with doubles there's like a mix of nostalgia and contempt for the 1950s and kind of suburban conformist america and you get a little bit of this in um in the wizard of oz and it's really interesting to kind of see these split screen comparisons and with like the archive contrasted and, and kind of see what people are saying john waters is one is, is one of the best ones he said that the uh, wizard of oz made him want to do lsd and kind of cites the campness of the villains as both like an influence on him and an influence on david lynch so mm. if you are into movies i would recommend this film excellent okay and one uh, last documentary you said 
So I've I've saved the best until last. My number one pick is a film called All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. It's directed by Laura Poitras, who you might know for her documentaries about Edward Snowden and Julian Assange. And this film is about another activist, a woman named Nan Golden, who is probably better known as an artist and a photographer than she is an activist. Um, she documented queer life in New York in the 1970s and 80s. And she also had an opioid addiction. And so her activism involves campaigning against the Sackler family who invented and sold OxyContin and made a ton of money from the um, the opioid crisis in America but sort of hid behind their philanthropy because this family donated loads of money to art museums and universities and so it's a kind of protest of the whitewashing of that and in this movie we see the kinds of protests and demonstrations that Nan has been involved with as well as kind of looking back at her life through her art and what I really liked about this was that it kind of looked at an artist who is still living through the work that they're doing now rather than just the stuff that made them famous you know it's about her and who she is and the legacy that she's still creating not just all of the stuff that she became known for and it really connects the empathy in her work to the empathy that motivates her activism um, and that's advocating for marginalized people queer people for addicts um, it's so personal it's really beautiful um, and I, I can't recommend it enough mm, and a, a good sort of insight into America today and why it might be facing some of the problems it's facing yeah, it's it's totally relevant and uh, contemporary. It's not just about uh, this period that's bygone. Um, it's it's about how we hold power to account, which is obviously a timeless theme. Mm, absolutely. Okay, so man, thank you so much for all your brilliant picks. They all sound fascinating, and I'm going to go away and watch them. And actually, I'm going to go away and watch The Wizard of Oz again because what an amazing film that is. I have to join you in that. I haven't watched that film in a long time and I'm I'm ready to to leave Kansas and to <laughs> Yeah, let's go down the yellow brick road together. We can hold hands and skip. Oh yeah, wonderful. Sounds good to me. Maybe I'll discover something about myself <laughs> <laughs> at the end. Thank you, Simran. Thank you. That's all for this month's podcast. Thanks for joining us for a February episode that hopefully avoided getting too mushy, but still got your juices flowing culturally speaking. The Vera Magazine podcast is made by Ink Studio for Virgin Atlantic and is produced by David Clack at Perfect Loop Productions. I've been Johnny Ensel and I'll see you next month. Bye.